Thank you everyone for joining us this evening. Um, we're pleased to have our first Dean's Huddle of 2023. Um, and uh, Connor Blake obviously deserves a big call out for having organized these for now coming up to two years. And we thank you for your kind of continued interest. And we know the one just before Christmas was very, very well received and we're thrilled to have a, a great guest again tonight on a very, very good topic. Just one very quick um, intro for you um, before we get to our topic and our um, and our guest. Just a reminder, our, our we have our private Maine MBA LinkedIn page, very easy to find. Just search Maine MBA, all one word. And we're now up to about a thousand members uh, sharing jobs and opportunities and linkages to other things. So just a reminder uh, to please, if you have not, uh, send us an invite to join that particular thing. So. Without further ado, we're talking about a topic that is extremely interesting and particularly interesting in our current ec economic environment, which is the craziest, as you've heard in previous huddles, that we've seen literally since World War II ended. Crazy inflation, businesses growing, things disappearing, changing consumer behaviors, interesting government decisions, all of these, these things around the world that are driving what's going on. So we're going to talk to an expert today in disruptive innovation. And I am far from an expert, but I know a little bit about it. So just to kind of set the table, Clayton Christensen, you probably, many of you have heard of him. He's a Harvard professor. So I know you've talked, uh, was a Harvard professor, uh, recently deceased. Uh, a lot of his stuff is very well, very well read, The Innovator's Dilemma. And he kind of coined with others this, this term. And you can see the definition there on, on, on your screen, that it's really something that shakes up an entire industry and really um, from the bottom up. And so there's some great examples there. And, and we're going to a lot more from Bruce, you know, Airbnb, you know, Netflix that found this thing. One scary thing for those of us in education, just before his death, uh, Dr. Christensen predicted that half of the universities in the United States would go bankrupt by 2030. So there you go. So for those of us, Connor, that are working in this field, something to think about. But it's, a, it's an industry, an example that's primed for disruption, just like taxis were, just like uh, hotels were just like movies were, etc. And so this is what we're going to learn a lot of tonight. It's a really important topic, and I've had a great chance to talk to Bruce about it. And we're going to get into it. So here he is. I grabbed him off LinkedIn, and hopefully that will encourage you all to try to connect with him. There, got an extraordinary background. Uh, he's been he's a president and CMO, as you can see there, of a of a consultancy. Does really cool stuff. He's going to get any works for the White House and big brands and all those really wonderful things. He sits on our advisory board for the Maine Business School and the Graduate School of Business. He's an undergraduate alumni from the University of Maine Business. Did his master's at UMass, if I have that correct, but still very linked into us. Uh, lives in Texas, but I think share, is in the Northeast quite a bit. You can see just very quick, I'm not going to go through it all, but he's been, works with blue chip brands as a consultant and prior had worked with some of the biggest, most innovative companies in the world. So he brings us an incredible background today, and we're really excited, Bruce, that you're going to join us. And I will turn it over to you, sir, for tonight's Dean's Huddle. Thank you, Norm, and uh, thank you and Connor for the invite. It's, a, it's an honor to talk to the MBA students and uh, on this winter evening, and uh, hopefully you can uh, take away a few tidbits as we go forward. I, I just want to mention, Norm, I, I recently picked up your book which, and I immediately had to go to the innovation chapter. And I, I just wanted to say that uh, the story about after you bought your cottage in, was it Northern Ontario, when you first got there and your family put on all your skates 
and sticks and puck and that went out on the ice on the pond or lake was a, a story that I could really relate to. I thought that was fantastic. It must be a great memory for you and your family. It is. Thank you. And we, we did get to do that a little bit again this year in northern Quebec, to be exact, but pretty okay. similar. Basically, six hours due north of Portland, where, where Connor and I are sitting tonight. So thanks for that. And fantastic. Yeah, I spent it, part of my summer in Prince Edward Island, as I had written to you. And uh, fantastic. Canada is a, is a wonderful, wonderful country. Uh, so thanks for the invite. And just a few thoughts. I thought I'd start out with talking about the current state of innovation. There's been a lot of change in innovation. In fact, we did a survey not too long ago with CEOs and to ask them, what is the barrier to doing disruptive innovation? Because at the end of the day, the CEO is the one who has to invest the money, has to take the risk. And they came back and they said, just like you'd think, it's very expensive and it's risky. So you could say, that's the reason they don't invest in R&D to do disruptive. Or you could also maybe take the position that the people in the organization do not know how to present proposals to senior leadership so that they can say yes. So it's really important, we've found, that you prepare yourself well through your MBA program and what you learn as you go forward to present proposals so that the senior leadership, specifically the CEO, can say yes to it. I can't tell you how many uh, clients uh, and their colleagues will complain about the fact that they will never invest in R&D. And I'll ask them to show me the, show me the proposals you have moved forward. And many of them, as you'd expect, were asking the senior leadership to take risk on something that wasn't a proven idea. They were promising sales and volume that was well below, well, well above, excuse me, um, what the technology or the product benefit could justify. So, for example, it's not, it was not a disruptive innovation. It was, as we call it in the industry, quote, the same old thing, end quote. And they were promising a miracle to happen, right? So a lot of companies will focus on producing the same old thing. We often joke in consumer goods that this could be a new flavor, right? A new variety. And you see these on the shelf in the grocery store all the time. But unfortunately, they expect a miracle to occur and for that to produce a lot of incremental volume um, and sales to the company, which is really not realistic. Uh, in fact, uh, our research shows that even things that are closer in, so let's say you're a food item, uh, today, more than ever, you have to actually uh, produce something that's more new and different than ever before just for it to be an incremental improvement. So in other words, things that are really close in, if you wanted to call it innovation, you probably shouldn't, have no chance of success. And that's why the failure rate is so high for most products, um, regardless of the industry. So it's really important to present proposals that they can say yes to, but we have to work differently. We have to work smarter to present ideas that are worthy of investment. I think a lot of the reason they won't invest is I think there's been a decline in the skills uh, within these organizations to present ideas that are worthy of investment. 
So you need to think like a general manager, particularly getting an MBA, from the start. So you'll be put into a position, you're in a position most likely now. Uh, the mistake a lot of people make from my you know, perch as a consultant, having worked with all these companies for many, many years, is that many people act and want to play a role. They want to do a task, right? As an MBA, your ambition has led you to do this. So I'm sure you want to be something bigger than that, right? We often use the baseball analogy. You want to be the pitcher and not the right fielder, right? <laughs> so to be the pitcher, you must think like a general manager. Even when you're not asked to think in terms of profit and loss or just cost or implications on the employees or your customers or your partners like retailers, you must think like a general manager when you present that idea forward to say, is that something I would invest in if I was the CEO of this organization? So think like a general manager from the beginning, if I can share it. It does not matter the task, the role you're in, or the function you're in. You will be more successful, and you will set yourself apart from others if you do that. So back on innovation, uh, a lot of innovation, as people call it today, is really product innovation, product evolution. It's really not innovation. So we've dummied down what we refer to as true innovation because disruptive innovation is really not done by most organizations. Um, in fact, that's why I have a business and there's a lot of consulting firms and, and such that can come into organizations because it's so difficult for these organiz organizations to do that. What's really saved these organizations over the last few years, of course, are the price increases that COVID allowed them to take. Have you noticed the price of eggs recently, right? Uh, it does not matter the category. And if you, look, if you look at the actual true increase in cost of some of these goods, the price increases well outpace uh, what they actually should cost. So price increases have allowed these companies, in fact, uh, from what we see, to move further and further away from investing in true innovation, which is really unfortunate. But at some point, they have to come back to innovation or they will die, right? If you want a premium price for your product, it must be meaningfully unique. It must be new and different versus what someone else is offering, right? Uh, it can't be the same old thing because most organizations are not designed to be the low cost producer, right? We've seen this, whether it be private label products or products that are coming from the Far East. Uh, most American companies are not uh, set up to be the lowest cost producer, so you must do something new and different, right? One of the other uh, dynamics that I wanted to share with you is the fact that with this lack of belief, it really presents uh, an, an opportunity for you, right? Well, when we go into a company, the opportunity we see is to develop more belief and hope with the teams and the senior leaders. They need a new system and a new approach for disruptive innovation. And this is really the essence of 
something that's called Innovation Engineering, which is a uh, minor degree program for undergrads, right, Norm? And a is it a graduate certificate for graduate students opportunity at the University of Maine? Yeah, there's a variety of different ones. And then there's um, there is a master's degree and there's a dual degree. Yes, you can touch on in a different a number of different ways. Yes. Right. So I we use innovation engineering at Eureka Inventing. Uh, I will share pieces of that, but I just wanted to share that that program is really is designed to develop disruptive innovation, right? It teaches the systems and the tools on how to do disruptive innovation. If you learn about innovation engineering, you will know more than 90% of the people you interact with in most of the companies you'll work in. That's a pretty profound statement, isn't it? You will, learn, you will know more on how to approach it. You'll have a system in your head uh, that'll teach you where a team should start down the path to develop disruptive innovation. I put the link, uh, Bruce, in the chat for the Foster Center of Innovation that offers those programs, if anyone is interested. Terrific. Thank you. Um, you know, very often in companies um, that this inertia from the past or the pessimism about the ability to do disruptive innovation uh, really stops teams from moving forward, right? Before they even do their homework or dig deeper, um, they, they, they fail in many ways, right? Um, often we hear things like, We've looked at that before, it didn't pan out, right? Um, there's no opportunity there. Um, I wouldn't look at that. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of inertia that that creates this lack of belief, right? And there are many naysayers you're gonna bump into. And these naysayers exist even in some of the best companies in the world. Trust me, they do. Your job is even if you're in a you know, first level job with your MBA as you move forward, is to be the most optimistic person in the room, right? But most importantly is when you have that optimism and you give belief and hope to others is to take action, right? Take action to dig deeper and I'll talk more in a few minutes about how to do that, to do something really big and challenge the team to do something really big, right? That's the most important thing you can do throughout your entire career is be the most optimistic person in the room. Senior leaders respond to optimism, right? Certainly you have to have the right presentation and the right justification on what you wanna do, but it's really important that you can be that uh, beacon of hope and belief for the rest of the organization and not feed that uh, the naysayers um, or those that just don't believe you can do something big. You can do something big if you approach it the right way. One of the other ways we do it is to state up front that this team, this time, this project will be the moment where we do something really disruptive. So you put the seed in their heads. It doesn't matter what the team is. It could be two or three people. 
you're working on a project, set the expectation up front that you're going to do something really meaningful and important. And don't stop until you meet that goal. Everybody wants hope and belief. They want to have an impact, right? So if you put that in their heads up front, it's amazing what can happen. Uh, we have a saying at Eureka that we say, now that we know it's impossible, let's get to work. Uh, and that really encapsulates what it's all about. An example with Dr. Pepper Snapple, who we worked with on Mott's apple juice. Um, moms kept telling us that they wanted the entire apple in the drink for their kids because apple juice is very unhealthy, right, as it is. The, the team said, can't do it. There's no way we could put the entire apple inside of the bottle. Um, we said, well, let's do it anyway, even though we can't do it. I mean, the worst thing we can do is fail. So over the, the next few weeks, talking to outside experts and companies and actually university researchers, we found a way to do it, to their surprise. Again, up front, they had the notion that that can't be done by digging deeper and never giving up. They did it. Another example from Nestle Foods. There was a beverage. They wanted a beverage to help kids focus better at school uh, for kids. Um, very difficult to develop a functional beverage that can be marketed, of course. There's a lot of rules and regulations. Um, kept searching and searching. We finally found a company in France that had the patents on something that could be possible. Believe it or not, Nestle owned the company in France, believe it or not. So they said it couldn't be done. They actually owned the company and had not done the homework and dug deep enough to figure that out, right? An analogy that we often use to communicate how the difficulty and how hard you need to work to develop disruptive innovation goes like this. Most people, when they're looking for an innovation, will go down the street, maybe take a turn and look to see if there's anything down that next street, stop, if there's nothing there, they'll go back to the beginning. They may quit, they may stop, they're discouraged. To deliver disruptive innovation, you need to go down the street, take a turn, take another turn, perhaps 10 to 20 more turns to find something that's worth pursuing. You need to be relentless. Sometimes you have to backtrack and start over, right? Best bit of advice, do not let the lack of effort stop you from delivering the project or the disruptive innovation. It's hard work. Innovation is really hard work when done right, but don't let lack of effort stop you from delivering it. Um, the real key as we start out these types of projects is to focus on solving real problems, uh, customer problems, retailer problems, business model problems inside the company. Um, and often you have to break new grounds. And so you have to challenge conventional wisdom, right? Uh, another bit of advice I'd give you is to start with taking complete responsibility for your project versus just for your, like be a role player like I stated up front. 
right? That's incredibly important. Another way we approach our clients, because you probably wonder, how do you get these, these engagements with these types of brands? Well, one, I was fortunate to start at Procter & Gamble in marketing, um, which was an incredible blessing uh, to do that. That gave me some credibility. But the other way, and I, I urge you to do this as you go through your career, is to take on the toughest challenges inside the organization. Don't shy away from them, right? Most people are largely risk adverse, so they will want to stay away from those tough projects as a way to manage their career. I've never been one to do that, as you could probably tell. Um, the vast majority of the time, if you put your best efforts forward, you will make a positive impact. You'll deliver on that project and it'll be a success. Um, making a small difference in something that's been a historical problem or challenge is usually a real win, right, overall. Um, the other misconception about innovation that I wanted to share is that it's about creativity. Um, this is often um, where people start and think that creativity is what drives innovation. Um, I think you've probably learned through your courses that innovation and disruption and growth really comes from delivering meaningfully unique benefits, disruptive benefits that replace others in the industry, as Norm's slide set up front. It drives profitability, right? It solves problems that consumers can either articulate and sometimes they don't. So, for example, for Breeze, from P&G, which we worked on, provided a benefit of making clothes smell fresher, right, and cleaner. That actually wasn't a benefit that consumers asked for. It was something beyond what they could imagine. Um, but obviously, when they started using Febreze, then they realized the benefit is, as we say at P&G, a consumer delight, which was, you know, fantastic. Um, I've used the term meaningfully unique. That's a term that's used in innovation engineering. Um, obviously, a new product needs to be meaningful to your target audience, right? It needs to be relevant and meaningful and useful. And it also needs to be unique, right? If it's disruptive, it must be new and different. So the challenge is doing those both at the same time, right? It's easy to do something that's meaningful, but not new and different. And it's meaning it's easy to do something that's kind of weird and wacky, but not meaningful to your target audience. So the key is to do both at the same time. Uh, one example we used, uh, we developed at uh, Coca-Cola, which I was uh, fortunate to work with for a few years. Um, you've probably seen the brand Simply Orange, right? It's a clear carafe of orange juice. This was a disruptive innovation. Right? It delivered a superior orange juice in a clear carafe that reinforced the benefit of the product. Everybody else was in these cartons, ugly cartons. You couldn't see the product. Orange juice is beautiful, right? So why can't you not see the product? It's absolutely a beautiful product. So this was dramatically different than any other brand. And it essentially went from uh, a new brand to number one in the orange juice category in the United States within two years. 
and Tropicana has still not recovered from that innovation. Uh, so you might look at that and go, wow, clear package, craft, yes, superior orange juice. Um, you can come in and disrupt categories if you test and learn and explore. Um, one, one area I wanted to hit upon was the fact that uh, innovation, as I stated up front, is much broader than just product innovation. Um, there's a lot of other areas of innovation that can have a huge impact and be somewhat disruptive. Um, for example, systems innovation is becoming something more and more companies are focused on. So for example, DAP, which is a caulking and sealing product line, they're number one, you've probably seen them in Lowe's and Home Depot. Um, we, we worked with them to actually uh, improve their entire innovation system from the front end all the way through to manufacturing, reducing the cycle time, increasing the ability to introduce superior products. Um, that is innovation. That's disruptive innovation because it enabled DAP to be much more effective and set them up for future success. So innovation doesn't necessarily need to be just a product um, that's introduced. Also, cost-cutting innovation can be a focus point. Cost-cutting is not just a matter of slashing and reducing the cost of your product. You can also be more strategic with it. So for example, um, we worked with Kraft, who came to us and said, our Capri Sun beverages and other beverages, very low profitability. We need to introduce a beverage product that will be more profitable and have higher margins. We helped them develop, I'm sure, something you've seen called Mio, which is, which is a water enhancer. It's a small little bottle where you're not shipping the water to the retailer. So you're reducing the cost of shipping. It's a small bottle versus a large bottle. So the cost of packaging is a lot less. And it's, it's one of the most profitable brands at Kraft uh, due to that strategy. So we started with cost cutting, but it turned into an actual innovation, right? Um, another business model innovation, we worked with Chase Bank a number of years ago. None of the banks were transacting business online. Okay, so, all right, so I'm old. I, I did this before they actually did it online, Norm. And in fact, it, uh, we helped them develop the first online bank uh, check deposit uh, for a bank. Cool. Uh, Chase was the very first uh, bank to have quick deposit with checks. And it really changed the rules on how banks worked. And then it eventually turned into, of course, fully functional online banks, right? So business models can be very disruptive. Obviously, one of the biggest examples and most successful is Uber. Um, if you think about Uber, did they invent anything or did they just take a combination of things that already existed, created a new business model for taxis, essentially, and changed the world? Um, but that's, that is innovation and that, that certainly was you know, disruptive. Uh, just a couple thoughts on uh, where to start with innovation, because this often comes up with our clients 
most clients focus on companies focus on driving innovation through what we call voice of the customer. Voice of the customer is essentially when you ask your customer what they want, what they need, and they will tell you. Sometimes it's good advice, sometimes not so good. The problem with this is that the voice of the customer is something that they're also telling your competitors. Um, and it also tends to be ideas that are very close in, things that they know of. They're just variations of the theme of what you're already producing. So the voice of the customer, which is typically driven by marketing and salespeople, I'm a marketing guy, so I'll pick on marketing people. Um, they will often bring these ideas forward. Yes, they could be worth doing, but I'll warn you that voice of the customer will lead typically to smaller ideas, not disruptive innovation. But it's important. You want to talk to your customers. Um, dis truly disruptive innovation typically comes from technology, right? Technology inside your company or outside your company that you acquire. Uh, the key to technology is making sure, and I think a good percentage of MBAs have a STEM background norm. Is that right? Yes. And so it's really important as engineers and scientists, and even to the marketing and sales folks as well, that technology is great, but make sure with that investment in technology that it's going somewhere. Early in the process, start to understand what are the benefits that this could provide, right? Sharing those with potential customers or other experts to say, is this a benefit that would be disruptive? So as you're investing on a parallel path, you're starting to understand what this can do. You don't want a whole R&D effort over one or two, three years to go by before you figure that out, because you often will look back and realize how much money and time you invested in something that uh, didn't go anywhere. So it's really important as part of that to, de to develop disruptive innovation, you need to use a multifunctional approach with collaboration. I know COVID maybe decreased the amount of collaboration. I have three sons that are in their 20s who keep telling me that people don't talk to each, each other as much. Uh, and I do believe you can do it through Zoom. I think you can collaborate effectively. I believe that. But collaboration is critically important for disruptive innovation. In fact, that's why you see Apple telling their employees they must come back because they want them to interact. So I really urge you to do disruptive innovation to collaborate. It's incredibly important. I wanted to share another disruptive innovation. Um, this isn't too long ago. Was we worked with Mars on Uncle Ben's rice. Um, this was a global team, so we really had to collaborate um, across the world, had to get a lot of buy-in. Uncle Ben's came to us. Their rice sales were declining. Uh, there were other convenient forms. Also, people were turning away from carbohydrates. You know, people don't want to eat potatoes and rice just as much as they used to. So our simple task was to revive the brand, right? That's no problem. Revive rice, right? So where do you possibly start? So we looked at a lot of technologies. We ran 25 or 30 cycles of learning, right? And 
importantly, you can do 25 or 30 cycles of learning very quickly if you get at the work, right? And a lot of big companies that can often take too long, we might just run one or two cycles of learning. And that's one of the things you learn from innovation engineering is how do you run 25 to 30 cycles of learning so quickly? I'll talk a little bit more about that. So I won't talk through all the ideas, but I did want to talk through one of them. One of the technologies was a way to grow rice to increase the amount of protein in the rice. So you basically challenge the notion that rice was just simple carbohydrates, but actually could provide protein. The one man that invented it, I was told at the time, was going to be on a fishing vessel off the coast of Alaska for about six months. I'm like, what am I going to do? So I said, well, what's his cell phone number? Well, they gave me his cell phone number. And of course, being ha having no other option, I called his cell phone number. And this man, and he answered his phone on the fishing vessel in the middle of the ocean off Alaska and told me all about the technology and product. That's a story that I will uh, always cherish. That product was developed. It's currently being tested in Europe. And we now have rice that has extra protein, which absolutely disruptive and should do some great things. Um, I just wanted to share a few thoughts on, I talk about cycles of learning and I think it's really important and maybe you'll have a chance to do innovation engineering. There's also a book that we can share uh, Norm written um, on the topic that great, great. most people can access. But, but importantly, when you do disruptive innovation and in innovation engineering, we teach you first and foremost to do deep stimulus mining. So I talked about voice of the customer, talked about technology, talked about look at competition, what are the future trends? So go really deep to understand everything that's out there that you could potentially use to develop that new product or disruptive innovation. And then you turn them into seed ideas. And it doesn't matter if you're working on a cost-cutting program, uh, a technology, a marketing program, sales program, uh, whatever that may be, put that into writing and test the idea with the key people inside your organization or, or outside if you have access to them, okay? We then use a concept called fail fast, fail cheap in innovation engineering to do fast cycles of learning to test, learn, and reapply and improve the idea moving forward. So we will do this two times a week. So over the course of eight weeks, you can have 16 cycles of learning. If you compare that to in a large corporation or medium size, they might do one or two cycles of learning in that amount of time. Your odds of success go up dramatically. That's how we do it. And that's how we teach our clients to do it. It's in, uh, and it's really the essence of innovation engineering. But my last thought, I may be running out of time, Norm. You're great. Keep going. Keep okay. going. I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about uh, your project, because I think a lot of you are doing capstone projects for the MBA program. Norman mentioned to me in a previous conversation. I have a few yeah, bits. Every student has to do 649. So yes, they're not there yet, but most of them are. We'll have to go okay. to the last course. Yeah. Right. So 
think about this. And, and, and before I share these thoughts, another way to improve your ability to innovate is to create a little side business, right? Um, Connor, you talked about having a photography business on the side, right? You do a number of different things, which is, which is fantastic. So very often when people take innovation engineering, they end up applying those skills to a side hobby or business for fun to improve their skills. We, what do you do when you try to master an instrument or a sport or whatever, you, whatever endeavor? You need repetitions, right? You need multiple repetitions. So when we work with a client with innovation engineering, we quickly want them to roll into the next project and the next project, the next project. So through repetitions, you will, you know, you sharpen the saw and you will get better. So you can take these things and apply it to maybe you work for a not-for-profit on the side, right? You can apply them to that, or you can introduce that product you've been thinking about, you know, whatever that might be, or an online business. So first and foremost. When you think about it, you'll be given a technology, I believe. I will tell you that regardless of what the company says or the inventor says, most technology is not ready to be turned into a product. 85% uh, of patents from MIT, the number one producer of patents, I believe, in the United States, never turn into a product that's commercialized. Scary, very scary. So it, they are typically not ready to be products and you will need to do a lot of test and learn to determine what to do with that technology. So you should expect this. You will have to do a lot of learning and understanding, okay? You will need to really go deep to understand the technology. So if you're a marketing person, you have to get over being a marketing person and you have to go deep on the technology. In a lot of corporations, people are in silos where marketing people think, well, I'm a marketing person. I don't really need to understand the technology. That is not true. The best marketing people or salespeople understand the technology. So you have to go deep and ask a ton of questions to understand the technology, regardless of your functional background. For the STEM people, it's more natural, um, but... We all need, you need to ask a lot of questions to understand. Don't rely on the scientist or inventor to tell you what to do with it, as I stated up front, right? Um, they may or may not be right. They may or may not have an idea. Their idea may not be the biggest idea that's right for your company, right? You can likely find opportunities for the technology if you work hard enough, right? Uh, you need to run experiments with a scientist to ask what if. So for example, we worked with Lysol. You're familiar with Lysol wipes. Um, we were working with them and they were having a problem pulling the wipes out of the, if, if you've ever bought those, they're sometimes hard to get out of the package and they don't, the perforation doesn't work correctly. Um, they wanted us to help with that. Um, it's kind of a technical challenge. And going into their plant, the, the R&D people and the marketing people had not spoken to the man on the line making the stuff on how to solve the problem, right? That's inexcusable. We need to go deeper. 
I spent a couple hours with him testing different blades and ways to cut the cloth so that those would separate, you know, much easier, but still be able to be wrapped up. Um, so the test and learn approach is critically important. I can't express enough the importance of getting your hands dirty. Don't delegate it to someone. Don't just ask the question and have someone give you an answer because there's a good chance that they haven't done the homework. You need to go deep yourself, get your hands dirty and get into the technology and understand from the key experts what the opportunity could be. So it's hard work, and, but the answers can be found if you go deep enough. And lastly, I'll share on, on that project is as soon as you can, share the ideas in a written form. We often coach our clients that written form, if you want to call it a concept, where you outline the benefit, the reason to believe, what makes it new and different, the name for the product, whether it's a product or service, whatever that may be, is the cheapest prototype you can develop. It is absolutely the cheapest prototype. So when you do that, you can then share it with other people. They see the idea as being real. They see that you're serious about it and they have something to react to to give you feedback so you get smarter, right? That's the key. So, and lastly is courage and optimism is the key. Um, as you can tell, that's what it takes to do disruptive innovation. Thank you, Bruce. That was that was very good. I, I I've got a, about five questions. I've made notes here that I would like to ask, but I know Alan had one in in the chat. Maybe Connor. I think he sent it to you. I believe you've answered a good chunk of it, but maybe Connor or Alan, do you want to ask that question? And then, if any of the others have one, and then I'll go I'll go last. Sure. Yeah. Great. Well. Uh, yeah. Alan's question was uh, more so, um, you know, about how he actually was able to sort of wants to work or is working for a consulting company um, and sort of has an IP and patents. And yeah, I think you kind of answered a lot of that, but wants to know what will work in the United States uh, for disruptive innovation. I think he's done some innovating um, elsewhere internationally and how he can bring sort of uh, that, that background information to, to the States and be successful here. He's got patents in uh, Taiwan and Beijing, if I read it correctly. Oh, okay. That, so I would not communicate what those are, Alan, with, you know, I wouldn't talk about specifically what they were in the U.S. until you filed for at least a preliminary patent in the United States. The laws changed not too long ago. It, it's now the first to file. Um, so it's really important that uh, you file for those in the U.S. before you you know, communicate them to other people. Um, the world's a smaller place, so, you know, people review those patents in other countries all the time, I'm sure, but it's always a good idea to file for those first and foremost. Um, what was the other part, Connor, that I... I think you got it. Did I? Okay. Yeah. Anyone else have any? Then I'll jump in, and then if others have any, they can go. So some of these go back a little while in, in your talk. One of the first thing you talked about was building things into proposals. And some, obviously, like Alan, have done consulting before, but a lot of the students haven't. 
talk like you were talking about what to put into the proposal, but give us an idea. How do you even get to the stage where you're able to submit a proposal to a Pepsi or a Snapple or one of these big companies, which you get to do and Eureka gets to do, but how do you get to that point where you're they're reviewing what you could bring to them for a disruptive new idea or a new product? From a consulting standpoint or from a standpoint of someone inside the organization? Consulting. Consulting. Consulting standpoint. The, the most important aspect is to communicate, like I said, belief and hope that if you work with Eureka Inventing, we give them that, that hope that this could be the project that works. There's a disbelief. If, if they knew the success rate, they would invest in it quite quickly. The problem is, is most companies do not have a different system or approach. So they've worked with those companies in the past and not had success. So they get a bad taste in their mouth. So the entire time they're being very skeptical of what you can bring to them. So we share with them a system approach where we say, essentially, gurus are not reliable, right? Gurus, which is what most companies communicate that they're going to bring to the party, um, are inherently not reliable, right? But a system, and we have a system on how to do this, and it's called innovation engineering, is reliable because over time, we've improved that system, made it more reliable, and it will consistently produce bigger and bolder ideas when we utilize it with your team. So if you're just selling yourself based on your guru status, there's a million gurus that say that they're the smartest guy on the block, right? We, you'd have to have a, a system and a mindset that you forever impact that team well beyond your specific project. And that's how we typically win. Obviously, our track record is in the brands we've worked with, you know, obviously add a lot in terms of credibility. Um, but they're really, they're really down. I mean, there's a lack of belief that that we can do that. Um, and right. you have to get over that um, by being really persuasive about that this is going to be a different approach. That's good. So like the process, the system, really good. Okay, yeah. second and question. The other um, thing, let me just add, excuse me, Norm. Yeah. The yeah. other thing I'd add is that, and it's really important for MBA students, you have to get really good at written and oral communication. You've got to get, you really have to write a lot, write a lot of proposals. What does writing do? Writing improves your thinking skills, your, your ability to be strategic. Written and oral communication is where it starts. You've got to be persuasive. You got to believe. Go ahead. Sorry. That's good. That's very helpful. The second one, um, and you, you kind of got into this a bit as it went later on, but when you talked about global and then Alan's question as well, when you have an opportunity to pitch or to do work in another environment, but you don't know that environment. So maybe you've lived and worked in Korea, but you got an opportunity in Madagascar. How do you go about informing yourself? Are you you finding subcontractors to work with you? Are you partnering with an agency there? How do you go about you know, being a competitive bid or or delivering on a project in a, in a country that you just don't you don't know well? 
Well, usually, I mean, we usually ask for everything we could possibly get from the clients and um, in advance, we, there's a lot of sources, of course, online to, to understand the differences from one com company to the next. But importantly, when you have a system, when you have a mindset about how to deliver and what it takes to deliver disruptive innovation, the, the facts or the particular example do not matter as much, right? right? So we often will say, I don't know the answer to your problem, but I have a system that I know will figure it out. And that's what makes the difference. So, so for example, um, the Veterans Administration with the White House came to us and said, um, we have we can't get these doctors to agree on what the diagnosis um, regimen should be for burn pit uh, victims from soldiers that were over in the far, uh, Middle East. Of course, I know nothing about constrictive bronchiolitis. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> um, and they asked us to help round up these experts with very big egos. So they sat back and I said, sure, we can do that. No idea what to do. Absolutely no idea what to do. Ended up doing a Delphi research technique. We tested it. We rolled out with the doctors over the course of about six months. We got them to agree. And the findings were published in a medical journal. So again, it's a mindset and a system and you apply it to any situation. and you, you can have confidence and you can be calm in any situation that you're going to get a very good result. Thank you. That's very good. Sure. Okay, I'm, I'm rolling here. If anyone else wants to jump in, that's fine. Your third question, I really, really liked your comment, and you've made this to me before in conversations about optimism, being the most optimistic person in the room. Well, that got me thinking, you know, thinking about places I've been in my career where you're just getting hammered, right? You're just down and out. So what little tactics do you use to still be optimistic when like the shit's hitting the fan for lack of a better term? How do you how do you keep that up? Or is there a point when you say, you know what, this is just not even worth it? In the first, uh, I laugh because, you know, I've been in that situation so many times and, and I'm not immune to being impacted by the negativity at all. I'm not going to say that I am immune to that. Uh, you focus on the work. You focus on what is the right thing to do with, and you're relentless because focusing on moving forward, typically others will see you doing that. You're doing the right thing. You're taking the high road. You're focusing on developing something that's meaningful, that could potentially have a long-term impact. Um, it's amazing how that gives you the energy to block out all that static, right? Others will typically jump on board when they see, wow, you've, you've moved something forward. Senior management's responding to that idea. They're actually going to invest in that idea. Eventually, those naysayers will have to jump on board or be silenced as part of that. So doing something big, in fact, I would set a bigger goal and a bigger objective, bolder, when there's negativity around you. Make a statement, casting out 
that net to a bold, big vision of what you want to do. And the, the right people will notice it, appreciate it, and give you energy. Perfect. Thank you. And next one, maybe this is a quick one, maybe it's not, but you mentioned the phrase a couple of times, something big, right? Like you're proposing, you're trying to, so I, obviously it's context specific and depends on the company, but give us an idea of, from your perspective or from your client's perspective, what is something big? Like, is it a blockbuster drug? Does it have to be huge profits? Is it something that just starts to make a difference? Is it something that makes your input? I know there's context, but give us an idea of what you mean by big. Well, I, I you know, it's a, there's a lot of ways to think about that, right? First, most companies have a very difficult time moving market share, right? Market share is very difficult to uh, steal from others. Um, so in a lot of organizations, if you make a significant move in terms of market share, that's huge. That's huge. Um, so for example, a lot of companies will say to us, um, we would like three $100 million ideas from this project, Bruce. And I'll ask the CEO, well, when's the last time you had a $100 million idea? Well, we've never had one. But you want three from this project, right? So that's not reasonable, right? So it's really important that um, in most organizations, and it's relative to the size of the company, obviously, and the product category that they're in, to look at the historical results. And if all your ideas have typically been five to $10 million ideas, if you were to deliver a $20 million idea, that would be huge, right? So it's relative to the historical size of innovations in your company. Most corporations, you won't see a lot of big ideas. It's been more evolution and incremental over time. Uh, so it's typically not as big as you think that what that big innovation is. I think if the market share moves, if it's a new technology or segment that's opening the doors for new opportunities down the line, even if the initial idea is not um, massive relative to the size of the company, um, that's a significant innovation. You have to start somewhere to get better at it. Um, it typically takes a lot longer than people think to get really good at disruptive innovation. So uh, we often tell companies, you will be successful with innovation engineering if you do one thing. They ask what that is. And I say, if you don't stop. <laughs> so DAP is a company that's been doing it for years and they're having incredible results. There's many others, Toyota, Walmart, um, that are using innovation engineering. And those companies that don't stop uh, are seeing great success from that. Thank you. Uh, I think Gia Don has a question. I think Connor, do you want to do that one? I saw it. Yeah, Gia Don uh, wants to know um, his his the, the, his worry might be that you know as disruptive innovation goes, you know the more innovation you do, the more things cost and the more the price increases. So um, when you're thinking about giving a pitch, what are some ways that you could manage? those things as, as you innovate? It's a great question. I, well, if you, uh, if it costs more and you have to charge a premium, it obviously makes it 
even more importantly, you're delivering a meaningful, unique benefit, right? Um, the, the problem is if, if you introduce a new product at a premium price and it can't justify it, you're dead, right? Consumers are smart, right? P&G for years, for example, has tried to get moms and some dads to buy a, you know, a, a third or fourth product for their laundry, right? You have a detergent, you might have a fabric softener, but they constantly are trying to get a third or fourth product in there as an incremental purchase with different scents and different things and not have a lot of success. Consumers are smart. Unless they see a real benefit or if you charge a premium and you want a premium for something, they'll only buy it if you provide that you know, dramatically improved benefit. Um, and it, it has to be real. You know, it can't be marketing mumbo jumbo or smoke and mirrors as we often refer to it. Mm -hmm. You have to be honest with yourself to say, is this a consumer noticeable, meaningfully unique benefit? Right? It has to be consumer noticeable as well, right? It can't be at the molecular level. <laughs> it needs to be something that they will actually uh, tangibly see. And then you can charge a you know, premium price. But also I challenge the notion that new technology has to be more expensive. Sometimes new technology can um, be less expensive, right? In the case of Mio, a concentrated liquid with a patented squirt bottle um, is actually less expensive and a premium priced item. Hmm. That's a great answer. Thank you. Thanks to you, Dom, for the question as well. Thank you. Um, and then, so we, we're like right up to 10 o'clock. So I have one more. So unless anyone else has one, we'll make this the last one so we can let everyone go back and watch the recorded football game. That's what I'm doing anyways. So no one tell me what happened. The um, the last question was, and you brought up Uber at the end, and I find this interesting. It made me think about it because I'm a Christian since work, where you talk about Uber, which came in venture-funded, highly sophisticated, big dollars, blew up that industry. So is that disruptive innovation or is that was a calculated innovation? You would know the difference. And then the other ones we've kind of talked about, like the Airbnb, where they started with a few people couch surfing and have built up, or Netflix sending people movies in a small area of California, and then they kind of blew up the whole industry. Talk mm -hmm. about those different scenarios and how you might approach them differently if you've got like a, the traditional disruptive innovation, which starts small and creeps up and, or these, you know, these kind of really calculated, highly funded ones. If, and I'm assuming in your vast background, you've got some insights there. Oh, I sure do. Yeah. I, uh, I introduced the convenient care clinics in Walmart um, stores. It was funded by Walmart and Steve Case from AOL fame. Right, right. Um, you know, it's interesting. Steve Jobs, when he came back to Apple, um, cut the R&D budgets in half. Um, there is something to be said when you don't have a big budget. If you think about an entrepreneur or if you have a, even a side business, right, from your studies, your MBA studies and your job, you have to do something meaningfully unique or nobody pays any attention to you, right? So you're forced to do something that's new and different, right? Um, very often with big budgets, whether it's a venture capital backed or a big company, what I've seen is there's so much money in the system that it creates a lot of bad behavior. Um, 
they will introduce things they shouldn't introduce because they haven't really figured out something that's meaningfully unique. Uh, they didn't do their homework and they just, you probably see products all the time in the grocery store where they just throw it against the wall and they see what sticks, right? And, and that's a real problem. It's almost a, a blessing to have less resources because you have to do something to be noticed, something meaningfully unique. Um, so very often the smaller startups that like Airbnb through word of mouth, Word of mouth is a very persuasive marketing uh, tool, right? We tend to tell people about things that are new and different and exciting. Uh, so word of mouth, and we graph word of mouth to understand where this can go and how fast it can go. The more meaningfully unique your concept, and you can test these things, of course, with your target audience, the greater word of mouth marketing will take place. Um, you will tell a lot of people who will tell a lot of other people, right? And with social media, it just explodes. So the, the, so the idea that it's this small startup that has to work so hard to create this big awareness, um, that's really not the model nowadays. The, the messages get out so fast. But in, in both cases, when you mention Uber and Airbnb, at the essence of both of them is they're solving a real problem. If you think about both. Yeah. It wasn't a nice-to-have benefit that they both provided. It was solving a real problem in a superior way. Airbnb um, not only provides a more convenient way to rent homes in different destinations, but also for the people renting the homes, they're getting superior rental fees than if they rented it long-term the way you used to do it years ago. So... So it works. Uber, we all know the benefits of Uber and what that provides. I mean, it's vastly superior to taxis. And so they solved the real problems. In neither case did they necessarily invent something. So I would probably refer to both of them as disruptive business models. But I wonder if either one of them have anything that's patented in yeah, either. I think so. I think you're right. Yeah. In way. yeah. But but it's but in both cases, you know. It's brilliant. Well, I if you don't mind giving us two more minutes, I know Alan had one last question. So Connor, why don't you ask this question and then we'll we'll wrap there and uh, let everyone go. So over to you, Connor. Yeah, and I think this one could apply to a lot of MBAers that might be watching and listening to this after, which is, hey, if I want, if, you know, if I'm an inspiring uh, innovator and I, I'm looking for the first steps after an MBA program or maybe I'm, I'm a you know, professional kind of getting my MBA, um, you know, what are some good qualifications to have to get started and, and get into this field? Well, it, it, it really helps if you go inside an organization that has mentors to support you. Uh, there's a lot of smart people in these companies, you know, with STEM backgrounds. Most people that have started a company um, started in in a company where they learned and had mentors and learned learn on their dime. So at least for a few years, go into a, in an organization and make sure you can learn from them. Make sure you're going to be working on challenging projects. Working for a large larger organization, it doesn't have to be a multinational. Um, there are certainly some larger companies in Maine, that, some great companies. Um, 
really is beneficial later in your career. I really would urge people to do that because the the confidence it gives you. I mean, think about me. I was I was at the University of Maine. I worked in finance with Wang Laboratories. Do you remember Wang Laboratories, Norm? Mm-hmm. That rings bell, yeah. Yeah. I, I got married a week after my uh, honeymoon. I got laid off with 5,000 other people. Wow. I, I'm sitting in New Hampshire. Two months later, I started a PNG in brand management. I was very fortunate, right? I, it doesn't have to be PNG. There's a lot of great companies in this world, but learning from people that are much smarter than you, much more experienced than you, PhDs and others, is beneficial. Even if you do it for three to five years, you, then you go off on your own and you'll have skills and experiences and contacts that will uh, allow you to be really successful on your own. That's terrific. Great, great way to finish the evening.